Um, hi guys, I'm Riz. And I'm Liza. And this is the Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind for some harry styles news of the week why don't we discuss what you think about pleasing i don't i'm not here for it i won't be purchasing the nail polish i've already seen reviews of the nail polish and i heard it's bad i thought that photo shoot was bizarre and i think he didn't do enough in terms of like I don't know. Sometimes Harry Styles, I think he has his heart in the right place. But like with his dresses and his nails, I'm like, you didn't invent, you as a man did not invent wearing dresses, masculine people wearing dresses and nail polish. You know what I mean? And then he like, sometimes it feels like he gets all the applause for things like other people, especially like queer black men had been doing and I'm like Harry like I feel like you could have like in that interview where you were talking about the nail polish like instead of just being like I like having pretty things on my fingers like you could have made more of a statement and then you just didn't so that's my thought what's your thoughts I'm also not a fan because okay here's the thing I think that it looks pretty And, like, I have seen some people with the nail polish on and, like, pretty, but also, like, the colors are just okay. Like, the colors look pretty, but they're not something I would like. And I feel like $20 for a little thing of nail polish is expensive. And also the eye serum thing that he has. It's only like half an ounce and it's $30. And he doesn't need the money. So I'm like. No, that's what it was like. Out of all the people to make a makeup line or like nail polish on, like why did he need to do it? And why that expensive? Especially because it's not even that good either. Like, like I've seen people saying you need three, four coats of this shit, which is not good. Like you want a nail polish that's like two coats or else it's that weird like tacky thing that happens. And it's like, okay, even when I see like the $8.99 Essie nail polish, I'm like, I cannot do that today. But that's good right. shit. Like, that's the good stuff. But you can get stuff for like $2.99, uh, like the Insta Dry. <laughs> now we're just talking about nail polish, but I'm like, no, but like, I was like, why did he do this? Like, he didn't need this. Right. And he just keeps letting us down too with his merch because his merch is arguably bad bad like i do like that shirt for love on tour like that pattern i mean with the two rabbits on it but like even then like his merch like niall warren has good merch in my opinion yes totally agree it's very cute i'm like harry you're literally the most aesthetic former member of one direction and you're giving us ugly merch and overly expensive not good quality nail polish yeah i love my shirt that I got from the Harry pop-up shop the yellow one that is like him yeah no that is love it but also like do I think it's good merch no I mean like I think I just like it because my favorite color is yellow you know what I mean but I understand why other people wouldn't like it but it's also just that like I hate merch that just feels like a picture like printed on something and that's what a lot of his merch feels like for me a design printed on something I'm like how boring Whereas meanwhile, like Taylor Swift's merch is lit, but um, you should always buy your Harry Styles merch from Etsy shops. Agreed. Harry does not need an ounce of your money. I'm sorry, but like he literally like give your money to some like very creative teenage girl on the, on Etsy instead of Harry Styles. I always think that too. I was just having this conversation too about, um, how, like, how do you navigate still liking Harry Potter but hating J.K. Rowling? And the way to do it is to support Etsy shops that sell Harry Potter stuff. 
like do not buy Harry Potter verified, Warner Brothers verified merch. Do not do yeah. it. But hey, some kid on Etsy making fucking headwind earrings. Hell yeah. It's like sometimes I feel like, oh yeah, Harry definitely cares about his fans and whatever. But then he does things like this and I'm like, where's that money going? Also, I saw some guy on TikTok who was like, wow, this is like really, really pretty. Let me go through for the skin serum thing. Let me go through the ingredients and see if this half ounce is worth $30. And there was nothing like there was nothing bad in it. And it was, I guess, ethically sourced and everything, but there wasn't anything special that would make it that much money. So it's just that much money because it has his name on it. And in that case, why would he want us to pay that much money? So stupid. It's just, it's ridiculous. And it makes me upset. And you know what you want um, to buy making? A perfume. Yeah, I would buy a perfume. I would buy a perfume that if it like had the vibe of Love on Tour or fine line like that's way more fun and even like a $60 perfume that yeah and then you don't have the nail polish or the serum you just have to buy that one $65 perfume and you're gold but it's okay it's also like can he do that because just a year ago he was promoting Gucci perfume that he probably can't he probably signed some kind of thing but moral of the story, we're a little bit disappointed with Harry. Harry, girl bossed too close to the sun. Girl bossed too close to the damn sun. Yeah, I think that's all we got to say about that. That's all we got to say about that because you guys, today we're talking, we're, you're listening to us and it is Thanksgiving Day. Happy Thanksgiving! Thanksgiving, everybody. How is your turkey? I know. Or if you're vegetarian, tofurkey? Oh my god, I'm sorry. I was a vegetarian for many years, and the tofurkey sucks. But yeah, are you guys done eating your food? Are you cooking your food as you're listening to this? Are you listening to us to drown out everyone else at Thanksgiving table? God, maybe you're going for a walk and you said, I gotta go. <laughs> and you're going, you're going for the walk, listening to a little sleep much reading. Are you hanging out with your grandparents? Right, you could be hanging with grandma and grandpa. Hi, Grammy. Hi, Grampy. You could be about to fall asleep from the turkey, which I'm here for. Like, we're, hey, little sleep much reading. Take a little nap. Did you watch the parade? Dude, I love the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love it. I love it too. Slaps. It like does, like theoretically it doesn't, but it does. But yeah, it's Thanksgiving. You're feasting. So, Marissa, what is this week's theme to accompany our little sleepy readers ears as they feast? Is it thanks week? No. No. It's feast week. Feast week. Feast week. So we read books that very much have to do with or center around feasts, kind of. Something like that. We're going to talk about feasting. What did you read, Marissa? I read this wonderful book called Winterset Hollow by Jonathan Edward Durham. And I read The Council of Animals by Nick McDonald. No no relation to the Golden Arches. No relation that I know of. Both of Mm -hmm. our books feature animals as the main, as a main portion, right? Yeah, which does feel, I don't know why, but like does feel kind of fall and kind of Thanksgiving-y. Thanksgiving-y. Mine had major fall vibes. I don't even know if it took place in fall. I will say mine did not have a feast per se, but it is a council, a debate, um, a feast for the mind. A sort of communion. A gathering. But yours featured a real feast, right? Yeah, it did. And why don't we unpack that a little bit? So did anyone in high school 
have to read that book, How to Read Literature Like a Professor by Thomas C. Foster, because I did. And it is one of those books that will probably ruin the, the way that you watch movies or read books, consume media, um, because it's like, oh, this means this and that means that. So he does have a brief part about feasts, and I thought we could think about it a little bit. He says that feasts can symbolize quite a few things, a communion, a coming together, even if it's just temporary, depending on how the feast goes, whether it's good or bad, could kind of determine the relationships between characters and the uh, peacefulness of the rest of the work. Feasts could also sometimes be, I don't want to say like an omen because an omen sounds bad, but a sign of something else that's coming. Feasts can symbolize humanity and kind of mortality because eating is a basic need that humans need to do. And so having a feast kind of shows you something that you have to do to live. Feasts are also a really good way for authors to create or build suspense and the way in which they do that and the way in which they decide how the suspense is going to be can often show what is to come in the book. So yeah, I was thinking about that a little bit while I was reading my book. And I do see some of that in my book. I was, I also wanted to think of other things. So obviously I thought of the Bible and, uh, you know, probably one of the most famous feasts of all time would be the Last Supper, which is a very temporary coming together and shows a brief friendship between people. It shows Jesus's own humanity and mortality. And in being the Last Supper, it does kind of show you what is to come in a way, because of course, it's almost like an omen. Um, it's almost like a sign like, yeah, Jesus is dying tomorrow, guys. Another one I thought of, which my book reminded me a lot of this, is Ready or Not. Because as soon as they have dinner, that's when they uh, decide what game they're going to play. And it turns out to be hide and seek, which is this whole big thing in the movie. It's very dark. What other feast related things can we think of? This is not like a, this is not a specific anecdote, but part of me wonders if a feast often away, it seems in film or in books, uh, it's a good place, you said, to build tension, but also to relay information. If you sit down for a meal in a book or a movie, you have a prime setting for conversation, for dialogue, and we have like, I just feel like it's often a place where information, crucial information, is passed along. You don't waste a feast. You will right. never have a feast or a meal and have run-of-the-mill dialogue. You wouldn't even necessarily have dialogue for the sole purpose of characterization. I feel like sitting down over food is for the purpose of here is a major plot point. And that goes with ready or not. I'll just like run with that example you just used. You sit down at that table, you realize this is gonna be the rest of the plot of the movie. I mean, there are often feasts where that kind of thing doesn't happen, but I don't know. I just feel like, like I said, like you don't waste a feast. Like you're not gonna, you're not gonna throw that into a book for no reason. You're gonna use it. It's a tool. Yeah, and ready or not, is there is like a good base tension there because they just got married, and it's like she's now a part of this uber rich kind of eccentric awkward family and she herself is not used to any of that so there is like almost this really awkward tension there of being a part of something but not exactly being a part of it yet right now another one I thought of and this is a little funny is every year I watch this also goes back to Thanksgiving every year I watch the SNL 
Thanksgiving montage, I guess. And probably my favorite, one of my favorite, if not my favorite, is it's got Amy Poehler in it and Will Ferrell and I don't know, a couple other people. And it's like, Will Ferrell's the dad. There's a mom. Uh, Amy Poehler is the daughter. And then she has a friend with her. And they're all kind of like talking and then they keep getting in arguments and then it will just grow really, really silent. Yeah. And as it's silent, they're all eating and just, it's like their forks are just like banging on the plates. It's like, you could tell so much from a character by eating, by them eating, by sitting with each other at dinner. And the, the awkward silence in that scene with them then making those clanking noises it's almost like I mean obviously it's comedy and I don't know I don't want to read too much into an SNL skit that's a little strange but but just the them clanging on the plates there's something about that where it's like they're still all saying something yes I actually think Amy Poehler is the friend and not the daughter but it's so funny because one of I think like the last argument she's just like pop like what are you doing it's so funny but yeah I think feasts are actually a really good mode for authors to show and not tell sometimes and there's just so much that they can do with it so we do be loving our feasts here I have like two thoughts Mm -hmm. one of them I'll say first because it's just fucking funny is um I don't know why but the first thing I thought of when we started talking about like feasts in literature which there's so many like you could even go all the way back to like Beowulf and be like feast but the first thing I thought of was Shrek 2 yes when they're at the table and it's so tense um I don't hey um that's an amazing film but um, it's a very good scene. But the other thing I thought of that was actually like, okay, like a thought was a feast can be a beginning, a middle or an end in terms of a story arc. Like it can begin with a feast and that's what sets the plot rolling. It, the climax, like you said, can be a feast or it can be a, a means and it means to an end, an end or culmination. Like a feast can be a, often I think we see too in like Shakespeare's, they end in a wedding. Mm-hmm. Comedies end in a wedding. They have to, it's like the literal rule. And that is usually like a feast. And we see a lot of com- romantic comedies to this day copy that. So obviously you can throw a feast in, like we said, as a plot device to relay information um, anywhere in a book, but it actually serves as a possibility for key points in the story arc itself. Well, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting the things authors do sometimes and the reasons why they do it. And sometimes we'll just never know. Right, right. If there's nothing else to say about that, we could hop into our reviews. Let's, let's do it. Um, so I'm going to go first with my book, Winterset Hollow, again by Jonathan Edward Durham. And I was in communication with the author and he seems like such a nice guy. And I'm, I'm very thankful that he sent me this book and I'm actually really excited to talk about it. So this book is about um, a group of friends who they like this book from their childhood a lot. And it was something formative to them, something that was like all our favorite books should be, um, something that kept them company, kept us company. And... They go on like a little retreat to see the island where the author once lived and where he is said to have based um, some of the book on. And things turn out to be not quite as they seem when they find out that many parts of their favorite book are real. The holiday 
in their favorite book called Barley Day is being celebrated that day. And they are a big part of the celebration. The hunt begins. With that, I'm going to get into it. For readability, I gave this book an eight. This was actually a book that I was actively thinking about. And it's not like, oh, I was thinking about the ideas behind it. I was more thinking of like actually what was happening. I had an idea of where this book was going, but I didn't know how it would get there. And it constantly surprised me on how it was getting there. Um, I never knew how the pieces all fit together, but they did and they did well. Jonathan does such a good job of like, this is, this is probably a bad way of saying this, but like author gaslighting you where you think you know where it's going, but he, he like makes you feel less confident in yourself where you kind of pause and you're like, maybe it's not, maybe this isn't going to happen. And I don't know. I, I love that because it, it makes, it means that the book's not predictable. Even if you think that you know where it's going, but you're not sure about it, the book was never predictable or anything like that. So it was a book that I was constantly thinking of the bot and the context and trying to put myself in it and things like that. The rest, the kind of like thinking of the deeper layers of the book didn't really happen until I finished the book and then I let myself consider more. So for language and style, I gave it a seven. Uh, Jonathan has a few things that I notice happening over and over with some of his sentence structures and his words. And um, it's like they, which this word gets a bad rep, but they, it was just like quirky things that I, I wouldn't write it that way, or I wouldn't use the word in that context, but it did make sense. And it was right. Like, it's not, it wasn't bad at all. It was good. It was just like, quirky like I was like wow I didn't notice that so I would say yes there is a kind of distinct style showing through also this book is lush with beautiful descriptions and not just physical descriptions but also some really really beautiful inner thoughts and uh, piecing together of traumas and self a lot of self-awareness that is written really beautifully Okay, for form, I am omitting the form, but there are a couple things I still want to talk about. So this book is in third person. It's third person omniscient, but it sort of hops around in a way that felt super cinematic to me. And by that, I mean the point of view switches rather fast without a page break or a new chapter. It reminds me of, and this is probably like a really, really bad example, but it's also the only one that I could think of. If you picture a superhero action film, I specifically am thinking of Avengers Infinity War. The big fight scene at the end, you know, you see Spider-Man and then it moves to Rocket and then you blink and it's the Hulk and next it's on Thor. It's very fast paced and you're getting maybe like a minute, if that, with each person. And there's no like scene cuts. It's very like next, 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 next. Um, And this book does that a lot where you'll be in a scene with one character and then the very next paragraph, you're in the scene with another character. The same, usually the same scene. Um, Sometimes not, but with another character and seeing how they're experiencing it. Super interesting. And it's not... It doesn't, it never happens. I can't think of one moment where you had a paragraph that gave you two perspectives that gave you the perspective of the perspectives of two people in one paragraph. And I actually really liked the way that he did that. I I really can't remember if I've ever seen a book do this before in the way that it happens, but I was really into it. It allows you to have almost cliffhangers in paragraphs, which is super interesting. And it made the pace feel faster, I think. And especially as a writer, I liked it because sometimes you are writing one character and then you get stuck and then it's like, what do you do? Well, with him, he just jumped to the next character and then picked off with that character like two paragraphs later. And it works so well. 
Also, I think you have to give him some credit for writing two stories because there is a book within this book, which it's a little hard to talk about because the book is also the book within the book is also called Winter Set Hollow, but it is written by um, a guy whose last name is Addington. So I'm going to refer to the book within the book as Addington's book. So Jonathan had to write Addington's book enough that he could A, constantly reference it, B, uh, he had to know the characters within that book um, so that his characters could pick favorites and things like that. He also interjected parts of that book into this book, which was really interesting. So I feel like to have known that book enough to have it so laced throughout this book, he probably had to have written quite a bit of it. It's also, Addington's book is poetry and it has a rhyme scheme. And I think Jonathan deserves some appreciation for how well-crafted that truly is. For shelf-worthy, I give this a six or a seven. I actually do think this book is shelf-worthy. It was a really good read. It feels cathartic and hopeful, but also makes you feel a little bit desperate and like pent up with tension. The ending was such a good release. And it again, this wasn't one story. It was multiple stories. I felt like I was following quite a few plot lines and I think that they were all satisfied by the end of the book for plot I gave this book an eight but I will say I could very easily give this book a nine because I liked it that much I think if you read if you read Winnie the Pooh or Peter Rabbit or maybe even the Brown Bear books or if you've read my two favorites Frog and Toad or The Wind in the Willows I think if you've read any of those books and were completely captured with it when you were a kid, and if they feel like beloved to you, then you kind of need to read this book. On the flip side to that, if you're a fan of, like we talked about in the beginning, Ready or Not, Us, Hush, A Little Bit Knives Out, maybe even your next, uh, The Strangers, all these kind of like trapped slasher type movies but also like a little bit of luxury, a little bit of Richie. I think any of them could be compared to this book in a way. And if you like those, I also think you will enjoy this book. The plot was also totally original, I thought. It was layered and packed with things almost exactly how I wanted it to be. Nothing was brushed over. Even the things that were packed in it felt wrapped up at the end. And it wasn't wrapped up neat in a bow, all cute and pretty. There, I wouldn't say there was like a happy ending but there was enough of it. For characterization, I would give this a nine. I loved the characters. And it's so interesting too, because there's almost a warning against this with how this book is made about like loving the characters, but they felt realistic. Like even the choices that they made during some really horrific moments felt realistic. It's actually a horror book where I felt no misogyny or sexism in it. So I really appreciated that. He's also really good at having you get to know characters in subtle ways. There's a lot about childhood in here. There's also a really good moment where the characters tell you who their favorite character in Addington's book is. And what better way is there to get to know a character or to get to know someone at all besides, you know, like knowing their favorite book characters? So really telling you who they are. Um, And then of course, we do eventually get to meet Addington's book characters in the flesh. And it kind of furthers this feeling of getting to know them more. Like I said, he really knows how to create and develop characters. He really knows how to get you to feel like you know them. But I will say by the end of this book, I am at a pause on who my favorite character was and if I should even mention it because they're all so good. And I was pretty convinced that it was one character most of the story. But then the closer we got to the end, it changed. The end of this one character changed his his entire person for me. And I was like, 
that is my favorite character, I think. But I don't know if I should say it because like I just said, it's very telling to know someone's favorite characters. And I don't know how people would feel about this character being my favorite. So I think that's all I'm going to say about this book. And it was great. Everyone, please go buy it and read it because I loved it. Also, the cover is actually really fun. And there are some really cool and almost spooky pictures in this book. And this is his debut novel, right? Or no? Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. That's sick. It's really good. Like, I really, really want to read it. I think you should. It was, like I said, the whole time I was getting literally mix the wind in the willows with ready or not that's so weird like that isn't it but it works aren't supposed to go together but i can see like but i can see it but at the same time i'm so intrigued because i can't like like you did a really good job of describing that it's a good read but there's still so much that i'm like what the hell could even possibly happen and like again i was like okay yeah like a feast and barley day and all that like crazy stuff but there's like so much more in it and there's there's so many things that are happening in this book like I said it's it's also a really good book about childhood trauma right right there's so much going on childhood trauma and like holding on to uh holding on to like bad things that have happened to you holding on to uh, guilt about things that have happened to other people <sighs> so many good things um even like the, the the phrase barley day is like kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit I don't know if it's a bat like I don't know it just reminds me of um like the lottery like the proverb in the lottery about porn um <laughs> it reminds me of that it also is giving a little bit of Midsummer, and I don't know if it, if you would relate it to Midsummer at all. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, like a, of a gathering in that sense. It kind of has that vibe. And then the other thing I'll say that makes me intrigued is that it reminds me of Lev Grossman, The Magicians. Um, which is also a TV show where the first few seasons of the TV show are really, really good. And then it goes off the rails. But mm. in in the story, there's a book and like a magical world. And then the magical world ends up to be real. And the author was real too. But it's like you said about idols. Don't idolize anybody because you may be wrong. Mm-hmm. about the people that you look up to and the stories that you thought you should look up to as well and that's kind of all I'll say on that um but yeah it did remind me of that a little bit tiny bit I love books within books I think it's kind me of too and like it sounds like he did a really good job with it and you're so right that you have to write two books kind of yeah because because writing one book in itself you have to know all of your characters in my opinion you should have backstory on your character that oftentimes doesn't even get put into the book just so that you can understand your character you should be able to know that person I feel like I should read some of it so this is from really early in the book chapter three um page 27 and this is when the friends are kind of exploring this island from which much of the book is based on. The terrain further in from the coast, however, was beautiful and surprisingly varied. The bulk of it was covered with thick pines, mighty firs, kingly redwoods, and stately spruces. But there were also rolling hills and peaceful valleys, rocky outcroppings and pockets of meadows and rivers and streams that seemed to almost sing as they bumbled their way towards the coast, which was nothing more than a memory now. It was as if the outside world was of no consequence, as if the rigors and nuances of daily life simply weren't allowed passage through the endless evergreen canopy, and the stench of modern madness was silenced by the scent of flowering bushes and wild grasses. 
Even half a mile into their journey, Eamon wondered why Addington had picked this place to build his castle. And he also understood his reticence to change it, even if just to make sure that it was his forever. Good God, it was ever lovely. I love that. The good God, like, I love that. So I think I'm going to read the very first anything that we get. This is the first thing in the book. And it is from Addington's book. So it is from this fictional book within his book that he's created. And here we go. The table was set and all were met with barley wine and beer. There were kin around and smiles abound as barley day was here. Glass blue skies and pumpkin pies and bellies full of bread. Stories of old about glory and bold and the paths the elders tread. The hollow was never so peaceful amid the buffalo's retreat. The foxes were never so impish. The owls never sang so sweet. The breeze was never so warm as it was on that September day. Every frog in his own little bog and not a worry to weigh. Every leaf a perfect breath of orange, green, and brown. And every blade of grass seemed fit for every patch of ground. Every bowl of chowder warmed the whole of every heart as did the sweet potato pies and leek and onion tarts. But as the sun began to chase the lighthouse and the sea, the party died of games and song and settled in for tea. And though the light was dwindling, which the children thought unfair, there were still two empty seats, you see, for Runny and the bear. Still two empty oaken chairs, two pastries left untouched, Two empty steaming cups of brew just waiting for their clutch. Two absences unspoken as they held their children tight. For he to whom their feast was owed was missing in the night. Twas on the hill the barley mill had stood for all this time. The rabbit found a spot to sit and let his fur unwind. His ears pressed back against his head no taller than the grass. He waited till the rumble of the buffalo had passed. He waited till his mouth was just too tired to curl a frown, till his nervous leg was spent sounding its thump against the ground. Then arose his furry nose, his ears, his eyes to see, his bare friend's bitter end as he sat slumped against the tree. And even in the dusk, he saw the red among the grass, the spot he'd set for the duel for which the buffalo had asked. And there next to his kindred bear, old Runny sat and cried, with no one near to shed a tear for the rabbit in the rye. It's got a rhyme scheme and everything. It's poem. Like, Jonathan knew what he was doing. Yeah. Again, highly recommend, everyone. Yes. Please, please support Jonathan with his debut novel. Support debut novels. So, yeah, that's all we have to say about that book. Now let's scoot on over to Miss Liza. a book um, called The Council of Animals by Nick McDonald. And I picked this book because I knew Marissa was going to read that. And I saw this at the my work, which is I work at a bookstore, um, classic, and I liked the cover. <laughs> um, and that is why I bought it. Um, but it sounded fun. And the general premise is that there has been a calamity, it's called referred to as the calamity, that resulted in the supposed extinction of humans. Um, but it turns out that there are, so animals have reclaimed the earth. Um, and it but it turns out that there are a few humans left. Um, so all the different animals, all the different kinds of animals, almost like uh, every kind, like almost like an arc uh, analogy, um, have selected an ambassador to come to the council and to vote on whether or not to help the humans survive or to get rid of them. Um, whether that be eat them, kill them, leave them for dead. Um, and it's kind of like examining the impact that humans have had on the natural world 
and the relationships that animals have had with humans. And you get, you get into the animals' heads, they all talk. Um, and yeah, it, that's, the, that's the premise. It's written by this author, Nick McDonald, who I was not familiar with, but I looked into and, oh, I would like to say that he has some like poli-sci writing experience and journalism experience. And I think that comes through um, because this is not a feast, um, but a communion. Um, it's a debate. And um, you can see that this is somebody who, who understands that kind of dynamic. Um, and I think that, it, that that in the book is really endearing. Yeah, not sure how I feel about this guy. Um, not that it really matters, but when I was looking into him, his dad was the managing editor of Rolling Stone and is now the managing editor of Sports Illustrated. And whenever I see something like that, I go, now wait a damn minute. I go, oh, okay. So that's that. Not not trying to, you know, implicate him in any way, but I was like, oh, so that's uh, how we got this. <laughs> but his first book was all, the, so, oh, also, he has a lot of books that surround like the Iraq war. I don't know if he it doesn't seem like he fought in the war, but I'm not sure. But, you know, it's like, like I said, it seems like he has some kind of grasp of like politics and war, which like comes through with like the calamity and like what humans do to themselves, I guess, as well as the natural world and uh, human nature and the humanity in an human nature of animals too, like the animalistic nature of both parties. But what something I thought was interesting was, that is more reminiscent of the fact that his dad is, was editor of Rome, is that his first book was in 2002, and it was about the disaffection, despair, drug use, and violence among a group of wealthy Manhattan teenagers during their winter break. And I was like, yeah, like this guy, like that, sure. Like he was, he, yeah, he wrote that. Um, and the funniest thing about that is I clicked on it, I guess it's a movie, and I was like, why is that literally just the plot of Gossip Girl, but more like, quote unquote, like masculine? And Chase Crawford, who is the star of Gossip Girl, stars in this movie adaptation of that book. And I was like, that's fucking hilarious. Like, Chase Crawford can't stop playing drug, violent, disaffection, obsessed, wealthy Manhattanite teenager. So I thought that was a little bit funny for this guy. But with that being said, this book is brand new, by the way, and so is Winterset. So let's get into it. In terms of readability, I will get into this more when I talk about language, form, um, and plot, or at least I'll give like more of an explanation. But I rated this book a five out of 10 in terms of readability. It was like truly an all right read. Like when you see five on our chart, it says, I think it says, it was an all right read. And this was truly that. There was nothing wrong with it by any means. And like I said to Marissa, like I was like, I would not ever discourage someone from reading this. Like I wouldn't be like, this was bad, don't read it. It was truly like all right. I don't regret reading it by any means. It's fun. Um, but at least to me, not a binge book, not something that's really gonna excite you and keep you reading. But yeah, it 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 was what it was. No like problems with it, but just not, you know, you know, we all come across those books. For language, I gave this a six. I did enjoy the style of McDonald's writing. I think it was very distinct or at least like almost jarring, like in a good way for modern writing because it did have a very storytelling, children's story, folktale-like quality, but the book is for adults. And so, I, I did like that. I thought the dialogue was the real star of the show here, which again, I will get into a bit more when I talk about form and characterization. But there were these points where there were these really great turns of phrase throughout. And there were sometimes descriptions of the animals that I really liked or like what the animals are doing. And the scene, just like the sheer number of animals in any given point. Like there's this one point where there's like a ton of cockroaches, I think is what it is. And it was just like really weird and cool. In terms of form, I gave this book a five. Technically speaking, there is nothing wrong with the form. It works, it's doing what needed to be done. But like I said, the real star of the show here is the dialogue. 
And so maybe it's because I just read Savage Conversations, but I wondered if this would be better in a play style format. I think the flow would have been nice and that debating style that is happening throughout would have worked out really well. And I think the thing is like, as writers, we're allowed to break rules and mess around. So I don't think he would have necessarily had to lose some of those good description moments for the sake of play like dialogue. I think he could have done both, especially because like the dialogue is the star of the show. And so it's like, he could have even pared pared down that some of those descriptions and just left the really good ones and had this weird kind of experimental book. I think the book would have been like a lot more, I think you could maybe say this book is kind of enchanting because of the talking animals, but I think it would have been a lot more like, ooh, like gritty in a good way if it wasn't the way that it is. Like I said, it's doing what he thought it needed to do um, in terms of the style or the form, but like, I think it could have been cooler than it was. And so that's what I kind of wanted to say about that, about like, um, the other thing, which is just nitpicky, is that there's a lot of, uh, the reason I want it to be play style dialogue is there's a lot of the so-and-so roared, so-and-so exclaimed, so-and-so cried, and the cardinal rule that we learned is I literally, I do this when I'm reading now. That's how much it was drilled into me is to edit out any sort of exclamation and make it said. And so at, while I was reading this, every time that happened, like I kind of cringe and I don't know why it feels like maybe that was working for this book because it is supposed to be more like a story, like a children's, like it's not a children's story. It's not for children, but it is supposed to be told like a children's story, which we do see that kind of dialogue tagging. But again, like I think this book would have been so much cooler if it just didn't do that. And so that's like a super nitpicky thing that like every time that happened, I was like, ooh, because I think you can, you can do, you can, you can flex your writing chops better with a description of the animal than you can with how they said, with one word about how they said the phrase, if that makes any sense. Like, I don't need to know, I don't need to know that the, that the bear, I don't need you to say that the bear roared. I need you to say what the bear said and then maybe have a description about what the, about the bear before or after that point, if that makes any sense. So that was like, a, I don't know. I, I think it could have been a little bit more strange and interesting if he had given himself the authority to mess about a little bit more. That's also my personal taste. Like me and Marissa and I, the stranger, the better. I never really want to read something that's not strange. Um, and so this book was strange in the point that there's talking animals and this cool like calamity that has happened but other than that, it was like not giving that bizarre that I like to see. That's the personal thing. Um, for shelf worthiness, I uh, not too much to say. I feel like I give this a four. Like it's a fine read. Like I said, I think you can borrow it. I don't think you need to read it. But like I said, there was I would no by no means discourage someone from reading it. It's another thing that you could support your local library and borrow if you're intrigued by this sort of idea of you know the calamity and humans impact on animals in the form of a story if you're interested in that like definitely pick it up from your local library now to get into the plot i gave this book a five and this is where i'm going to talk about the bulk of my thoughts or or rather observations this so it says on the front the council of animals a novel um, oh let me jump back real quick in terms of form this book actually has a ton of illustrations in it, which I adored. I think more adult books should have illustrations. Um, I'm not really sure who did the illustrations. It doesn't say, which is a little bit upsetting. It doesn't say right in big letters. I feel like, it, hey, I feel like artists should always get credit. Yeah, I have no idea who did these illustrations. Maybe he did them, but Maybe we did them. I don't know. But the illustrations are really cool. There's movement to the images. It's actually really cool. Um, like, I actually want to give a huge shout out to um, 
illustrations in this and that's something that I admire and like I said I think why do we stop having illustrations in books when we're older like I would like to see it so I did like that um, so extra points honestly for having illustrations there's just movement to the illustrations that's why I'm like who did these like it says who did the jacket artwork but did that person do the inner artwork too? Steven to but I don't know. I wish it said. It's a little sad. Unless Nick McDonald did it. But I don't know if he did. A plot. Um this story, so it's a no so like I said, it's a novel. This story does not really feel like a novel at all. Um, it feels like a story, or even more so, it feels like a parable. Um, and we stand a parable. Was this parable, was it necessary that this parable had to be 193 pages? Unsure. Um, anecdotal stories often do not work, and that is because they aren't really stories. They don't have a story arc. They're anecdotes. Um, and I'm not saying that this didn't work because I actually think it did. And I'm not saying that it has no story arc because to an extent it does. But I think like, that's the point. Like, I think he was like, he was like, he was like, I'm going to write a parable. And he did that. So once again, I'm like a little bit conflicted because I'm like, can I really say shit about shit? Because like, I think he meant to do exactly what he meant to do. But that doesn't mean it's like a really interesting read for that reason so i think if you're i'm trying to figure out a, like, a way to like say that like if you're going into this being like i'm gonna read a novel today i'm gonna read the council of animals you will not be getting that you will however be getting an interesting parable and so if you go into it where i didn't have it i wasn't thinking i didn't really go into it with any thoughts so i wasn't messed like i said i wasn't disappointed by this book like I wasn't like oh like I was just like okay like that's what that was that I read but I think if you go into this thinking like okay this is a parable about human nature and almost kind of like political theory in a way too you'll be more in, uh you'll like you'll get more out of it than if you go into it thinking this is a novel that I'm going to sit down and read like I like to read other novels so that's kind of my thought on Plot. Um, characterization. Um, I gave this book a six. I think McDonald captures the voices of the animals really well in this book, and I thought it was a ton of fun. Um, like I said, we stand talking animals, and I think he did a good job at making them human, but keeping so much of what makes animals animals and what makes them better than people in a lot of ways but also humanizing them in a really interesting way that you're like, that because they're having this sort of political debate and because they have these hierarchies have been created in this animal dominated society, it's like they're humanized in a way that's not, you know, like, I feel like when you're talking about characterization, you're like, oh yeah, you really humanized this, that, and the other. And that's seen as a good thing. Here, the humanization is negative, but like, it's good. Like, I'm glad he did that. Like, he's showing human nature through animals. And I think that was really interesting thing. It's almost like, I don't know, like, I'm trying to figure out, like, well, how are you going to, like, use this book? It's like a lesson. And I'm like, almost like it could be used for people studying political theory, like Machiavelli's The Prince like you could use this as a fun way or like I know that like my dad's a poli-sci professor um so maybe he'd be interested in this book but like I think well and when I was in high school we read Lord of the Flies for poli-sci which was fun to do and it's an interesting way to look at politics and democracy and or lack thereof and I think my dad uses that as an example too, and he also started using Squid Game. Anyway, so like, I think you could use that book in that way. People also compared it to two other books. Um, the Boy, the Mole, The Fox and the Horse, which is another modern day parable. 
And then this book, which I always see at work too, called A Children's Bible, which is, they say the urgency of Lydia Millet's children's Bible. And I think the children's Bible is post-apocalyptic. And that's, and that's what makes me think that's why they compared it to this because the calamity is like humans have finally done themselves in and are we worth saving um no so yeah that's what i'm like oh like that could be interesting use for the book um but yeah a lot <laughs> the other thing was a lot of at times um the animals kind of reminded me of the animals in narnia and I did actually really like that because I love the talking animals in Narnia. They're so real. Like they talk like people. I hate when people make animals talk like not people. Like um, it's almost like to not like this at all. These animals are very much similar to like the fox and the badger and the beavers in Narnia. But like, you know how, you know something, I'm scared of Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like, I, I, I think it's great, but it also freaks me out. And I think it's because they talk like real people. Like George Clooney and Meryl Streep, they're not putting on like little voices. Like they're straight up just talking. And then there are these weird puppets and it's really weird and cool. I like that so much better than when people make animals have like weird little voices and like almost like dumb them down. Because I'm like, here you have an opportunity to not do that. So why would you? Um, so that's why I did the Narnia analogy. Like, that's not a bad thing. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, cute. You remind me of Narnia. Like, I'm saying like, like, yeah, like, I like that. Yeah, and it's just fun. Like, there's no other real way to describe it. It's not like you're necessarily attached to these characters, but they are distinct and vibrant. And in this kind of story, as we said, a parable that's all that really matters. You're not supposed to have like a favorite character. You're not supposed to be like moved. Like it did have characterization. Like you were able to see these creatures and the impact humans had on them and their specific relationships to like the dog specifically like that kind of thing or the horse, like these creatures that have had such long-standing connections to humans. He did really think that through. So yeah, that was my thoughts on this book, very like middle of the aisle, but like I said, like not necessarily bad. That's not a bad thing at all. Like sometimes we have those books and that doesn't make them less than, um, but yeah, that, that's all I thought about that. Sounded very Animal Farm to me. Yes, like Animal Farm too, exactly. Which is another book you could read in a poli-sci class. Yeah, it made me think there is this kind of theme a lot of times when we have animal books for adults of like the animals wanting to like repel humans certain traits from humans but then sort of becoming the traits or the things about the humans that they hate exactly which is something very much in my book very much an animal farm what is that guys but that's the other thing too that i was like wow it's so timeless like animal farm was so relevant in whenever what was that the 60s or 70s earlier than that earlier than that yeah right because 19 in the 40s right yeah. wasn't it yeah it's really old so it was like super relevant and it's still relevant and it will be relevant in 30 years this book relevant the calamity relevant in the 40s probably even more relevant when we've screwed ourselves in um 30 more years or whatever like, it just shows you that humans literally are absolutely, I, like, I, like, this sounds so bleak, but literally, like, incapable of change. Like, it's just, tr like, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's really sad. But, but it's true. It's really true. Cyclical creatures. Yeah. Yes. Next week is our lady Louisa May Alcott's birthday. But we're not just going to read Little Women. Marissa, what are we reading instead? For our Little Women Week, we are reading March Sisters on Life, Death, and Little Women by uh, Kate Bollock, Jenny Zhang, Carmen Maria Machado, and Jane Smiley. Woo! And we stand both Jenny Zhang and Carmen Maria Machado. 
I'm, I'm excited though because I love Little Women. I'm also very excited and yeah. Not to gender things again, but girly, li- bookish girlies, girlies as in any gender, <laughs> are obligated to like Little Women. It's Absolutely. just the tea. Yeah. So that's why we're celebrating because we wouldn't, we girl, female writers, Marissa and I, probably wouldn't be here really without Louise May Alcott. I mean, maybe, um, but we do have to thank her for that. But we're super excited for that. And yeah. And happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll see you in December. We'll see you in December. And thanks for listening. And go buy some new books. Spoil yourself. Yeah, treat yourself. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Dads. Dads. What's up with Dads. 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 Listen, there's no S.